Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. This season, we're discussing the ways critical race theory interacts with Asian American Christianity. Join us each week for a conversation about race and grace. I'm Daniel Lee. And I'm Alex Jun. We are your hosts. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to another season of Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Lee, Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary Center for Asian American Theology and Ministry. Our topic this season is race and grace, critical race theory, and Asian American Christianity. Our season is made up of a series of conversations with my friend and neighbor, Dr. Alex Jun, Professor of Higher Education at Azusa Pacific University. In this episode, we're going to talk about critical race theory and our churches, thinking critically about race as it regards to our churches and different kinds of churches in a sense. So we can kind of start with this, uh, Alex. Does critical race theory have a place in our churches? Or if so, in what sense? Yes, it's finally here. We get to talk about how critical race theory does or does not belong in the Church of Jesus Christ in North America. And, you know, it's really a broader question that I want to start with. Is there any non-Christian ideology that Christians may or may not use uh, to understand the world and how it can benefit what Christians are trying to do in glorifying God? So the answer is yes. This is something that we've been doing for a long time. The problem is a vast majority of people who hold perhaps theologically conservative or socially conservative views or whatever they need to justify to say critical race theory is of the devil and it's in the world and anything that's being said in the world does not belong in the church. Well, We've been inconsistent for many, many, many decades, if that were true, because the world's secular ideology has been going hand in hand with a lot of our thinking in the American churches for a long time. We are engaging everything because we want Christ to be Lord of all. That's basically what we're talking about. And I was thinking about the fact that when we say, you know, we're having a number of conversations about critical race theory. And the gospel, we know these are not the same thing. We're not saying they both have equal authority. We know gospel has authority. That's the norm. The question is, what does that mean, right? How do we, how do we bring that about and have, a, have an intelligent conversation about these things, especially as it comes to uh, uh, relation to our churches? Yeah, it's such a good, again, I'll, I'll take a step back from critical race theory for a moment and talk about other things that are much more palatable and perhaps acceptable in many churches. Therapy. And counseling, for example, employing a lot of secular ideology from Freud and Skinner and others who were not Christians, uh, but to apply therapy for Christians. And sometimes Christians are therapists, uh, working with Christians and non-Christians. And so when you think about that context, no one simply rejects, a vast majority of people shouldn't simply reject therapy because it's rooted in a non-Christian ideology, right? That's a problem. That's one example. I think we mentioned in a previous episode, something like recycling, right? Uh, right. What's the ideology behind recycling? And if there's an agenda from environmentalism uh, that is opposite of Christianity, then should we stop doing it? No, we should do it. But everything falls under the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And at that point, we need to be able to recognize what is subsumed under. 
I don't know how many times we need to continue to say the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and still be able to recognize that God in all his infinite wisdom was to provide other perspectives, even from non-Christians, for us to learn from and glean. I think some people have said, why is a church talking about critical race theory? Why can't we just go back to what MLK said, what Martin Luther King Jr. said, in terms of us being judged by not the color of our skin, but the content of our character? I have a dream speech, right? Yeah. Those two lines, right? That's what they focus on, in a sense. And the idea of not being divided or defined by our skins, but to unite in Christ. What would you say to people like that? Because that's a very common idea, common response to racism. Racism will be solved if the gospel just focuses on the fact that all of us are just children of God. Yeah, it's so difficult to have extended conversations with people who pick and choose specific quotes from some of God's prophets or pick and choose certain texts from scripture to justify their positions, right? Why do we start with Martin Luther King, right? What were the antecedents to some of the speeches that he was giving? It was race-based. I mean, that's the irony of ironies, right? He was arguing to not hold people to racialized categories because black citizens and others didn't have any rights in the United States and also by extension in the churches in the United States. Mm. Why in the world would we choose that particular soundbite and forget all of the social context of civil unrest and civil injustice that led to Martin Luther King's movement and everybody else's? Yeah, it's amazing the fact that I think people have this idealized image. Once again, soundbite. If you literally read through or listen to the whole speech, here's King talking about the Blacks as a victim of unspeakable horrors of police brutality. So he's talking about it because this is not something foreign. He's not talking about just a way of kind of bringing a bandaid. He wants to talk about what life really looks like. But we cover up the whole thing and talk as though now it's solved because he made a big speech. And so it's interesting if you just do a little bit of a deeper analysis of history of the church in the United States. When people say, I wish we can just stop talking about race because it's been so divisive and as if bringing up issues of race and being more critical about race has led to the division, right? Going back and making the church great again or making America great again, you're talking about an era where race was not discussed. How far back should we go? 400 years of African enslavement? right? When good Christian men and women were able to thrive in their life, living their best life now, because they had enslaved Africans working their fields and providing all the uncompensated labor through slavery. That can't be what we mean. Are we talking about a more modern period in the 50s yeah. where African-American citizens were able to serve and fight in the military and yet had segregation. The same was true for Asian Americans serving in the military. Meanwhile, as we're going after the big bad Aryan race and all the atrocities that were happening in Germany to the Jews, here in the United States, Japanese American citizens were locked up and interned and sent off to prison camps. And no one was perhaps in the church talking about race. That should be a problem for us. 
problem was not talking about race. Yeah, this idea of idealizing the past, it's really bizarre. I was listening to a past was talking about the fact that, you know, in the old days with the great awakening, when people were not doing all these immoral things, they were absolutely committed to God. And I'm thinking to myself, but they were slaves. I mean, like, how does that work out, right? I mean, who is it good for? What does that look like? I, we had this idealized images of the past where these things weren't disrupt- disruptive. When in fact they were so normalized, yeah, yeah, they were so normalized that it's they weren't issues. Yeah. Well, coming back and kind of bringing back to this idea, so what does it look like on the ground? So let's start talking about just kind of our neighbors in a sense, right? There are white churches, predominantly white churches. You can talk about uh, white churches or white churches with some some splattering of diversity. Or you can talk about multi-ethnic churches, and they all have their own particular issues. And of course, we can talk about Asian American churches later on because we need to talk about our own people as well. But in terms of what this looks like for white churches or, or even white churches with diversity, what are your thoughts on that in terms of how does this play out? And also, what are the ministry concerns that these white churches should really be aware of? Let's start with some presumptions that need to be challenged when, when we talk about normativity of white churches, right? They'll say, oh, you attend a black church or an Asian church or a Korean church more specifically. And then you ask the question back to you know, someone else, hey, what kind of church do you attend? And they say, oh, it's just a regular church or normal church. This is a problem because what are we basing this on, right? We're looking at what? The normative numbers of people just on compositional diversity alone. If it's a majority white church, we call it a white church. Don't say, wait a minute. No, it's not just a white church. You know, we don't talk about that. We think about uh, theological diversity. So they'll focus on that where there's so much diversity. Some are Methodists, some are Presbyterians, some are non-denominational. It's almost as though they want to talk about different kind of diversity and, and kind of avoid the whole racial discussion altogether sometimes. Yeah, it takes cr- tremendous effort to try to avoid talking about race and ethnicity as the primary and most visible form of diversity. And so, yes, we'll talk about left-handed people. We'll talk about, uh, you know, half our church is from the South and the other half are Northerners, uh, you know, and, and so that's just an interesting distinction that I suppose could be made. Um, but these are the only times that I hear some of my white sisters and brothers talking about, oh, we have Scottish heritage and uh, we've got Dutch folks and we've got Germans and Irish. And, you know, the, the flippant answer in those cases is to simply say, oh, they're all, you mean white, right? That's just a category. Well, see, let's talk about this thing, because I think some people that I've interacted with who are white try to avoid the label and say, I don't like that label. You know, I am of German descent or I was Scandinavian and, you know, my family or I, so whatever. Right. So uh, how sometimes this idea of ethnic identity for white people works to avoid this racial category. And we know they're both important. I think we both would agree the fact that affirming and owning your kind of ethnic heritage and multiple ethnic heritage. This is a good thing. But historically, there's history here. There's a history of how this worked. And when you start talking about ethnic identities, right? As opposed to racial ones. Yeah, you know, I could point out at least one group that Korean Christians have been compared to, it's the Dutch. 
and the Dutch reform folks in the United States, you know, and when well, some of my Dutch sisters and brothers will challenge me on some of the ethnic specific ministry that goes on. And I say, well, you know, if you're in a Korean language presbytery, for example, or a Korean specific church, and they're saying, this doesn't seem biblical. I'm like, I, did you say that 300 years ago when the church in America was either English speaking or German speaking? Or they had, you know, maybe they had EM and GM back then, right? English speaking ministry and German speaking or Dutch speaking ministry. The Dutch reformed churches that gathered together eventually formed uh, CRC, right? right. So it was, RCA and CRC, right? Right. Yeah. So it's fascinating when you think about how it evolved and communities still in pockets of um, across the United States are still heavily Dutch, but you get to pick and choose when you say we recognize that we're Dutch and when we choose to say we are just Americans. That idea of Europeans and the growing sense in which whiteness having enveloped different ethnicities, I mean, that's the thing that it's so invisible, right? Because you're enjoying the privileges of being white. And it's not the only thing. We're not saying the fact that whiteness is the only aspect of who you are, but it's still there, right? And, and it was a fundamentally different experience than people who are Asian or people who are Black historically, or people who are Hispanic or Native American historically, but that's hidden to them. They don't see the fact that they enjoyed whiteness even as they had Dutch or German, I mean, German roots. And, you know, for example, World War II, a lot of German immigrants were, were persecuted. I mean, there was, there was really anti-German sentiment. So what did they do? They changed their last names and they got rid of the German, German uh, ethnic uh, heritages, right? German right. So by just disappearing and blending in, yeah. they avoided that, that particular stigma, whereas Asian Americans can't and Black people can't, right? And so you see this history even from Ellis Island where names were changed for that very reason. The fact that you're able to change your name and slowly assimilate into a white dominant uh, society says something about the skin color and the role that it plays in society. Uh, Daniel, you and I can change our last name to Smith and Jones. In fact, <laughs> my last name gets uh, misinterpreted from John to Jones all the time, especially you know if they haven't met me in person. That doesn't seem to change the experiences. And this is true from the early 1800s till today for Asian Americans, right? That simple concept that we're trying to communicate to, to brothers and sisters in the church always seems to be met with increasing resistance to say, no, 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 it's not true. It's different. Well, going back to the topic of uh, white churches, white churches with some diversity. I mean, I've had some people say, look, oh, you know, there's some people who are like just obsessing over the fact that they have to diversify, right? Because diversity is so sexy, you know? And they're like, you know, it's so boring. We're all white people. We're trying so hard to diversify. What what are your thoughts, you know, regarding that kind of comment? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the, I'm sure we can talk more about the self-work that individuals can do and then the self-work that churches can do. But, you know, I had a, a friend of mine, a precious brother who loves the fact that I'm Korean and we're able to interact uh, quite a bit. He was trying to tell me how uh, he was celebrating a moment and his church is mostly white and they were celebrating that they were fighting their way through singing a song transliterated, but it was a Korean hymn or praise song. And, and he was trying to tell me how encouraging that was for their congregation. And he was telling me this. And my response was, oh, that's fascinating. We don't even sing songs in Korean. 
I mean, so, you know, I, I don't what am I supposed to do with that? But it spoke to one, the intent and the heart was there. But I don't think we need an all white church to be singing songs in Spanish and Korean. I think it needs to be a deeper level of awareness for your context. I mean, we talk a lot about churches and neighborhoods. If your neighborhood is all white, and that means your church and your schools are all white, there's work that you need to do within your communities. We can talk about something else in a minute, which is white churches with all white people, but then you have maybe Asian churches that still are white churches, just with Asian faces. But we can talk about that later. Right, a little bit later. Well, I'm reminded of this book, David Swanson, his book on discipling the white church, right? And it says, discipling the white church from cheap diversity to true solidarity. I was talking to this one church leader and saying, what do we do? What do we partner with? What black people can partner with that they can teach us? And I was like, there's like an endless amount of books you can read. Why do you need a black? I I, I mean, I understand the relationship is important. But it's almost as though, oh, are you going to pay them if, you, if they come? Because, it's, I mean, are you going to do the work yourself? Yeah, or do you right. need somebody to kind of spoon feed you? Do the work yourself, right? Do, I mean, you can do all kind of racial work specifically for your own congregation. So they can own up to it. They can partner and, uh, and be allies to different people. But I'm not sure what you're looking for. Is this like a cheap diversity or a shortcut of avoiding the problem? Once again, like talking to one of my colleagues and saying, you know, well, can you give a summary? of this 20 page, because it's too long. Yeah. Can you pay for one summary? I'm like, how, am I, how many books and how, how, much, how many hours have you invested in this topic, right? Well, I want to be as easy as possible. That's right, yeah. Right? And I'm thinking to myself, that's, like, that's, that's kind of a crazy idea, the fact that you wanted to, this work, which is so difficult for people of color, to be as easy as possible for you. I think that really speaks to something for me as I'm trying to lose 20 pounds, my elusive 20. You know, I know you do rock climbing. Good for you, Daniel. But, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. I know one answer that's not true in solving this. It's not buying the as seen on TV ab roller, right? The, the 1995 <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, 995 in two installments. It's the quick fix. It's the mini max principle, right? I want minimum effort and maximum reward. So you can almost see the mind churning to think, how can I benefit the most from this, but do the least amount of work? And so if you're listening to this and you've been struggling with what's that one session that we need to do at church, that one person I need to invite to have our church listen, or that one not even the book, the one chapter, that's the silver bullet. It does not exist. It's the hard work that is required in terms of reconciliation for ourselves and with God. And starting there, um, holding a mirror up to ourselves and to our Christian community to be able to say, what are areas that we have we've known about, but we've left uh, silent and unaddressed for so long. It's going to take a lot of work. It's not just a one and done. So much deeper than the sex and diversity that we see. Some people, you know, we had a different church reach out and say, well, look, we want to hire an Asian American. We're predominantly a white church. We want to hire an oh, Asian American. Goodness, uh, you know, well, we, we, I know we did, we wanted to hire Asian. And I was like, from like Asia, <laughs> like what are you talking about Asia, right? And I was like, well, let's let's talk about just the whole context of your ministry, 
right? Because you and I were agreed, it, just bring somebody in without thinking about the broader culture of the church can be toxic for the Asian American, or you might bring somebody who is purely visu- uh, visibly Asian or Asian American, but don't really bring much resources. That's right. So I do a lot of equity work and consulting. And so I get the occasional invitation to come fix everybody's problem. Usually it's <laughs> after some sort of racialized event that triggered and necessitated a visit from a, you know, an equity scholar. So I tell this story all the time where, you know, I remodeled my house, it's 1940s house, very old here in Southern California and uh, need some work. But what I want, and I called, uh, you know, a general contractor, I said, what I want is new windows and a fresh coat of paint. That's what I want. So I call the general contractor over. The general contractor has been doing this for, you know, decades. And the contractor says, where's your basement? And I said, I don't know. You know, it's <laughs> a basement. It's dark and scary. We try not to go down there. But I don't know if you heard me. I wanted new windows and a fresh coat of paint. The general contractor who knows what he's doing goes to the basement, looks around, uh, spends a whole bunch of time in there. Uh, and comes back up and says, you've got some dry rot, you've got very old plumbing, you've got very old knob and tube wiring, all of these things need to be replaced. He's talking about foundational changes for the house. I'm talking about sexy um, external changes to the house. I want it to look nice. I'm less worried about foundational changes right? And we know the right answer. It's going to take more time and money and trust of someone who's been doing this for many, many, many years to say, let's deal with the foundational pieces, not just the window dressing. And oftentimes, I dare say, when you invite somebody in, we just want the window dressing. We want it to look nice. But if I say it's going to take you 20 years, probably a couple hundred books, lots of prayer time and repentance and sharing and reflecting, going back to your family members, your brothers and sisters and uh, fathers and mothers and grandparents, there's a lot of work involved. Or you can just do the window dressing. Yeah. Now, there are these churches who've said, look, we are multi-ethnic and you might have pretty diverse churches. And a book that I really appreciated by uh, uh, Dr. Corey Edwards. Yes. This book called The Elusive Dream, The Power of Race in Interracial Churches. Talking about the fact that, you know, it doesn't matter who leads these multiracial churches. Most multiracial churches end up with white hegemony is what she calls it, right? Because in, tr- in, in order to keep the white folks who have a lot more choices in going to churches than other, other, other places. So in order to keep them, you cannot be too radical. So therefore the main principle, the foundation of the culture still ends up being white normative and, and white, having white hegemony. I mean, can you speak more about that? Yes, I could take it a step further and say, it's not just the dominant whiteness in positions of power. It's also the money follow the Mm. money and folks who are in positions of power who throw their weight around on various boards and church leadership teams will say, well, we don't like the direction we're going. And for whatever reason, that person's opinion is $500,000 more valuable than someone else's opinion. Um, And so church leaders need to recognize uh, the dangers. These are principalities and powers that are in place. Um, the reality of money and power. And so it's not just whiteness, but absolutely right. What drives a lot of even multi-ethnic churches is a white normative standard that we can't break free from. 
dare I say, even Asian American churches or more specific ethnic groups like Korean churches or Korean American churches often borrow a lot of their, get their cue from the white church. Hold that thought, because we're, we're going to get there. Because uh, we, we need to talk, talk about our own, own community here. But in terms of like, one of the things that I always, I'm always minded by is that when people quote MLK for multiracial churches, I mean, I always say like MLK was marching for, he wasn't marching to, for us to have multiracial churches. He was marching for voting rights, right? He was, voting, he was marching for the soul of our nation, not just individual souls. I feel like when these multiracial churches, they don't care about voting rights. They don't care about political liberation of, of, of minorities and the black folks. And they talk about worshiping together. I mean, if nothing else, they should not be referring to MLK because they're, they're actually talking about two different things, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I think going back to this very um, somewhat complex uh, issue with just compositional diversity, if you're a, a predominantly white church, a majority white congregation, the problem doesn't get solved with hiring one black pastor, one black family. Uh, maybe you pray that the, um, the praise leader will be an Asian American, right? And hopefully they'll have family. And, you know, you just sort of, you know, it's like throwing spaghetti to a wall saying, well, maybe if we invite one or two good looking Asian families to the church, maybe they have friends and they'll bring their other Asian families. Within communities of color in the Christian world, we talk to each other. Uh, we, we, we use various um, phrases like, is this a good place for my family? Will we fit? Right? How white is it? How dominantly <laughs> white is this church? How are you doing? Are you surviving here? We don't usually air our laundry, you know, in well, we are now with this podcast, but I wanted people to know if you're in a white church and you love your church and you love the black pastor and that one Asian family and that one uh, Latinx family that comes to our church and they bring so much diversity and richness to my life. You see what happened? What did they get? Mm. They got nothing but microaggressions, <laughs> erasure, oh, you know, nothing but a bunch of uh, tokenism. And all the applause in the world today, we're so glad you're here. Continue to teach us. Why are you so tired? Right? <laughs> Talking about yeah. all this stuff. And by the way, as you're teaching us all these things, I find it odd that all you ever do is talk about race. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's get talking about Asian American churches. Obviously, there are different kinds of Asian American churches. There are ethnic churches. Uh, independent kind of uh, independent ethnic English ministry churches, right? So churches that are, are in the English ministries that have left their first generation or immigrant generation and have separated over, they're Asian American churches who are Pan-Asian, they're Asian American churches that are multi-ethnic. So we have a wide range and we have, you know, obviously like Indian American churches, Philippine American churches, like all kind of diversity, right? So how does critical understanding of race play out when we think about churches? Asian American churches or immigrant churches or ethnic churches. Now, you, you certainly know this, Daniel, about the long history of Asian Americans in the United States. And so right. it's hard to pick one particular group. So it's important to make these distinctions as we're talking. But let's pick a few modern examples. Okay. Um, the Taiwanese American church 
in California, for example, or the Chinese American church in California, they still have a CM, a Chinese ministry and an EM, English speaking ministry. Oftentimes the English speaking folks are literally the children of the older generations that immigrated to the United States. Um, and the expectation is that you stay together. I mean, there's something beautifully collectivistic about that um, and very beautifully covenantal about that to use biblical terms. And yet as second and third generation Asian Americans, Chinese Americans in this case, start growing and maturing and finding their own voice and their own footing, they feel very, very limited because of the dominance of a previous generation in their way of thinking. And so the danger, and it's easier for me to talk about the Korean American church, which is, has a shorter history here in Southern California with the immigration laws in the 19, mid 1960s, mostly in the early seventies where people started coming. There is this strange sort of uh, time warp that Korean immigrants are locked into. Whenever they left South Korea to come to the United States, that's their reality. And the assumption is that they're still holding on to culture and norms and values and practices from the old country. Meanwhile, South Korea has developed and, and changed where you Moved can't on. even recognize yeah. the culture. And yet the only ones holding on to the 80s style culture are the Korean immigrants who are living here in the United States. So let's talk about that. So we're talking about how, how the later generation uh, understand their cultural heritage to their parents and that generation. And they don't realize the fact that what is defined as particular, you know, uh, Chinese or Korean heritages are, are dynamic things. They're not stuck in time. It's kind of an orientalist way of thinking about it. Now, I want to kind of share you something because a couple of years ago, we did, a, we did some research, did a survey um, with different kinds of churches and they're all senior pastors were, interview, you know, were, were kind of surveying. And what we found was that between ethnic churches, I mean, EMs in ethnic churches, independent EMs, and Asian American churches trying to be more, more diverse, EMs in ethnic churches, English ministry in ethnic churches, they cared about culture and identity and all that because they were dealing with that from the, from the immigrant generation. And then the Asian American churches who are trying to be more diverse, they cared about it because they're trying to be more diverse. So they had to think about race, especially because they realized, oh my gosh, these people are coming and we, we're trying to figure this out. But the independent EMs, the, the EMs that recently left or they're mono, kind of mono ethnic, right? Like they're all Taiwanese American, but they're, they're, they're one church or they're Korean American or they're, you know, those churches were the ones that care the least about their culture or race or anything. They were just trying to be church. And we just thought that that was actually kind of depressing. Like they just didn't understand what was happening. They were just trying to be. And so we, we, you talk about this thing, this idea of whiteness and how it functions within Asian American churches. Can you talk more about that? Like yeah. you try to explain, make some sense of what that really means. Like how does this happen? Well, so I, I probably the best way to do any of this is to lead from my own confession and my own uh, journey as I repent uh, of a lot of the things that I held um, growing up, I became a Christian in college, and my first experience was a, uh, a Korean church. I, I was a full gospel guy, you know, first in Vermont, downtown LA, uh, a very, very Korean church with a half English, half Korean, half Konglish, uh, 1.5 kind of church. Um, and, that, <laughs> and that was the English-speaking ministry uh, in my church, uh, hardly English, to be honest. As I grew and stayed in the Korean church, uh, what happened was 
there was that what we were talking about earlier about the time warp and they're holding to an 80s standards of life and expectations that are very Korean, um, mm-hmm. you know, forcing morning prayer or forcing, you know, how to, uh, you know, different types of uh, honorific language and different things like that. And if you're growing up, the culture part is difficult because you're like, oh, you can't add extra biblical things to culture. This is the problem with the Korean immigrant church. And we rejected all of this, or I should say, I had a hard time with all of this stuff. And then me and a lot of my friends who are now pastors of, of growing Korean American independent English speaking churches, what drove us was just don't be so Koreanized in your culture, in your ministry practice. And we said, we never said it, but we felt it because white is right. We assumed mm. that this was unbiblical. Well, it was non-white, but it didn't make it any more biblical. And so the grass is always greener. Uh, you go to, then you leave the Korean church with many people have, and they go to the white denomination or a white presbytery or some sort of gathering group. And they realize, oh, wow. I just went from one extreme uh, cultural situation to another extreme cultural situation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they didn't fit in in either. So the struggle was so much deeper than simply, you know, not talking about race or their own ethnicity. I feel like they were always wrestling with their own race and ethnicity, just never were able to articulate it. They just knew that the context of a Korean church felt very, very ethnic. And then going into the broader white community of Christians felt very, very white. Since we're confessing, earlier on, we knew that uh, our Asian American churches were were corrupted by culture or whatever. There was definitely things on there, right? So we definitely saw that. So, you know, I mean, I think definitely a lot of that was white normativity. It was, it was, a lot of it was internalized racism. We definitely get that. But it's not like... It's not like Asian culture is perfect. So even if we address that, it was, it was there were there were issues where there was an encroachment of culture upon what the gospel was. So we thought, why don't we go to an uncorrupted church, right? Things that are actually just Christian. It's not contaminated by all these cultural values. And we went to white churches. Yes, that's right. Right. I mean, I went to like a reform seminary, like, you know, a, like a seminary that was actually quite reformed and said, I want the pure gospel. That's right. Right. Because that actually has no culture. It's just pure, right? That's pure right. as you'll get straight from a German theologian. That's right. <laughs> the Dutch, <laughs> no the culture British, there, right? and the Germans and yeah. a little bit of the French had. Yeah. So it's fascinating, right? We bought into a lot of the white dominant, white normative um, ideology that made uh, culture and faith tantamount to, you know, being Christian. Uh, And it wasn't white people only who did that, right? Asian Americans bought into that because we made the, we conflated whiteness and then white normativity with Christianness and biblicity. And that, that was the fundamental problem. One more confession for me, you know, I talked about Tongsongido and, you know, waterfall prayer, you know, when we pray all together. <laughs> and I, I may have said this before, but, you know, I'm one of the people who rejected it when it happened because I was, I said, anything that's like first generation Korean immigrant style prayer must be wrong and unbiblical. Mm-hmm. And yeah. many other Korean Americans made the same confessions these days to say, yeah, we want just normal prayer 
And yeah. what we learned from our seminary professors, that normal prayer was white style prayer, individualistic, <laughs> one person at a time, orderly, and all these types yeah. of things. And that, that has its place too, but it's not any more biblical than uh, Korean Tongsong Kido. So you come right. full circle finally, and you realize the grass is not only greener, it's a lot whiter. Um, it's not much better. But so you can take both. And I think where we're landing is there are flaws and cultural uh, normative practices in all of our theology. To say that we're not is itself a problem. We have to recognize it. So once again, looking back at critical race theory, one of the things that I appreciate so much is this historical awareness, historical and structural awareness, right? Thinking about historical development of what this looks like, and also broader um, critical understanding of how this, how these ideas are baked into the system. So for example, the fact that our seminaries are not, they actually are within a particular racial, cultural space, that forms them, right? right? They're not they're not immune to these things. And, and we're not saying all of that are bad, but if you don't know it, I mean, one of the things that I always say is that if you don't know the cultural context, you have no idea how it's seeped in and how it might be taking the taking this, you know, driver's seat and taking over the whole place. You have no critical lens to see that. That's right. That's right. And part of the problem is we're not starting from the beginning of the story, right? We're starting in the middle. Right. One example that comes to mind, seminaries and churches across the country seem to be having conversations about critical race theory and the church as we are. The difference is most of those seminaries and churches didn't also have a seminar before this about the dangers of racism in the mm. church. Now, doesn't that tell us something that we are more afraid about critical race theory in the church than we are about racism in the church? If you've never had a seminar on racism in the church, but all of a sudden decided to have a seminar on critical race theory in the church or in the seminary, something is wrong fundamentally with the way you've approached race. Right, because race was invisible. We just thought it was, it's, just, it's just whatever it is, right? It's in the air. We just thought that's what we just live with. And what, what, what do you hear these days when people say that critical race theory is the greatest threat to the church in America? And right. I think, oh, more so than racism? You know, um, that's a problem. Everyone's worried about what does it mean to be anti-racist? And they say, well, I'm, you know, I'm anti-anti-racist. I believe that means you're racist. Um, <laughs> so I don't know how many more distinctions we're going to be able to make, but these are Christians who are saying these yeah. things, and that's problematic. As we kind of try to wrap up here, think about what has to happen, at least for our church, whether you be, you know, uh, white or predominantly white or, you know, multi-ethnic or whether it be Asian or American church of different kind. I mean, one of the things that I always talk about is that, you know, often a church might be, socially or culturally one thing but first of all they don't want to acknowledge it they don't want to see themselves this way right they don't see the context so because they can't see the context they can't figure out what's happening or some asian american churches they might gather i mean i go some of these churches i see they're all korean american and it's almost as though it's like an elephant in the room nobody wants to acknowledge the fact that they're korean american. I'm, I'm like it's really odd i mean you don't have to always say we are a korean american church but i'm like if you are all there then you are attending to people. So what does it mean to theologically own who you are, right? And to do ministry that way. Now, we don't actually always have to label things as Korean American, but not seeing that and acknowledging that, 
I mean, there's a problem there, That's right? Right. And what's interesting is while we might recognize that we are Korean American, this is certainly true for my church. Um, when when I do bring up race and talk about different issues, anti-blackness, which is in the Korean American church and in Korea and in Asian American churches. Um, talking about anti-blackness, we're talking about white supremacy. It's the Korean Americans who are the first to come up to me with criticism. And one person, several people actually over the years have said, Alex, could you please tone it down and be careful because, you know, I, I don't want to offend other people. I want them to think that we're racist. Who are they? Who are you talking about? And so it's this weird dynamic that now, unless you've, you know, taken some classes on Asian American studies, you didn't realize that you were Asian American or Korean American. You thought you were white. And all this time, you're just trying to assimilate and fit in. But let's talk about this whiteness, right? Because, I mean, so Russell Jung has written this book called uh, Faithful Generations. And he talks about, at the end of the book, he says, it's weird the fact that some of these Asian American churches that are trying so hard to be multi-ethnic, he says what they do is strip themselves of every aspect of, I don't know, stinky melon or mush, whatever. What, thing that, what makes you distinguish yourself as Asian American? And he says, what's sad is that the white people might not come, right? Even then. And he says, you know what? But this is not their issue. This is a structural racist issue, right? So you're trying so hard. And you're like, well, can we be more hospitable? When in fact, you're dealing with the racism of other people who will not see you as a, as a spiritual kind of authority. So and, and then there's the other aspect of it where you say, I mean, I had one, one uh, person who said, oh, isn't this great? You know, even the white people are coming. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Does that, right. does it give you like, what you want to cook a like, cookie for that? I, I don't understand what you mean. Like, so are you saying now you're illegitimate? Now you're amazing because even the white people come. That's I don't. Right. I don't understand how this works yeah. out for you. In a weird way, right? This is the reverse of, or the other side of partiality, um, which is forbidden, as we talk about that in the Book of James, um, that we're very partial and preferential to certain people. In this case, for some Asian American churches, we'll disregard a newcomer who's Asian American. You're like, oh, you're a dime a dozen, but we want diversity, so we really want the white person to come to our church because it gives us greater legitimacy, mm-hmm. um, and. You're absolutely right. And Russell Jung is absolutely right about this idea of no matter how hospitable you try to be, you try to get rid of kimchi during lunch and, you know, whatever else. But the hostility comes from a societal approach of disregarding and erasing Asian American spirituality and Christianity and not being seen as leaders. And so, you know, we can take our cue from lots of places, but, you know, I love the book of Acts. In Acts 6, it talks about how the creation of deacons emerged as the church of Jesus Christ was growing in the early church, there was a complaint, right, that rose um, within the Christian circle. It was the Grecian Jews and the, and the, um, uh, the Hebraic Jews. And it's a fascinating uh, exchange of what happens is the establishment of deacons, officers in the church, was to deal with racial reconciliation, to deal with racial inequity. And it wasn't just waiting on tables. It wasn't simply that they weren't being served. I think the deacons had to do a a scan of society and the social order. In other words, they were looking at the system that was in place Mm -hmm. that denied the serving of their widows. And so they didn't just wait on tables. I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at the situation. They had to address some of the systems and the structures that were going on in society and by extension, the church of Jesus Christ in the early church in the book of Acts. That's a great cue for us. 
I mean, once again, whether it be taking care of uh, orphans or, or widows, or, or whether it be seeing the systems, how do we attend to the whole person as we do ministry, right? I mean, it's not so much the fact that hey, some people might be ministered to uh, if they go to certain ministries. I mean, there are aspects of themselves that can be ministered to, but think about God of incarnation, God of you know, uh, resurrection, the fact that our bodies are being used as well, right? And in Revelation 7, 9, we see the fact that like our distinctions still stay, right? So what does it mean to, uh, one of the things that we always talk about at the Asian American Center of Fun is to say, what does it mean to be to reconcile all aspects of ourselves. Beautiful. And when a church doesn't acknowledge or see, then you're not going to lead to uh, this full uh, discipleship and reconciliation of all of ourselves for the gospel, I mean, for, for God's kingdom. That's what we're after, right? So it's not just cosmetic diversity. The question is, are people being discipled deeply? Are you, are, are you giving them one-size-fits-all gospel that just serves certain kind of people and leaves other kind of people just on the side. That's right. That's right. My final thought in this is we need to deal with our own issues, especially within Asian American churches. If you happen to be attending an Asian American church and we say, share the gospel with your coworkers, with your patients, with your students, whomever it is, um, and bring them to church. I've heard this time and again, not just at church, but other churches, predominantly Asian American churches. They said, oh, yeah, I'd love to bring a coworker, you know, who's Jewish or white. What? And they say, but I don't want to bring them to our church because we're so Asian, almost apologetically saying that we're Asian. And I think, wow. But I mean, we're not necessarily sharing the Asian gospel, are we? We're sharing the gospel. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, how is it that you... The, the level of shame and self-hate that is evidence in statements like that. But I don't blame the individual, Daniel. This is the important take-home yeah, yeah, point, yeah. right? This is a system that's set up um, through years and years of education, years and years of misguided teaching on the pulpits to say that somehow Asian Americans are less than, um, mm. right? And the white normative approach that is so dominant it reigns supreme, even in our minds. It lives rent-free daily. Um, rent and so daily. this is the problem of a system of supremacy, not individuals. And so I want to be very careful in not blaming any individuals, whether it's white people, right. Asian Americans, or whomever, who bought into that idea of either self-hatred on one end or longing for and moving toward assimilationist on the other. Yeah. And, and I think being able to see that, I think that's what's been the usefulness of critical race theory and the insights it gives and saying, like, we're not talking about individual people here. We're not even talking about racist people. We're talking about these great, deeper uh, historical systems. And, and from a spiritual sense, we talk about powers and principalities. And you can't deal with that by pointing fingers at people specifically. That's right. In any case, Alex, um, what a pleasure is to continue this conversation with you. It's, it's been super fun. Thank you, our listener, for joining us. We're so grateful to have you with us. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss race and grace. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.